Night Talk with Oliver Dixon. It is 13 minutes after 10 p.m. You're listening to Night Talk. My name is Oliver Dixon. Thank you so much for the honor and the pleasure and the privilege of your company. We're going to start with that conversation on the national health insurance. Our guest for that conversation is Professor Alex Fanden uh, Hever. He's the chair of the Social Securities uh, at uh, Social Securities at Witts School of Governance. And we're also going to be talking uh, in the same conversation to Fatima Hassan, who is the founder and director of the Health Justice Initiative and a human rights lawyer and social justice activist. You'd remember Fatima having fought for the access to ARVs and for the access to COVID-19 vaccines when we were facing those harsh patents by the rest of the world. Those are my guests for this evening. What are your questions and concerns with regards to the national health insurance? I'd love to hear from you. You can be a part of this conversation. Give me a call, 086-000-2032. You can raise that throughout the conversation as we're having it. We're going to start off with Professor Alex Vandenhever. Prof. Alex, good evening. Thank you so much for your time. Welcome to Night Talk. Good evening. I'm going to ask you a very rudimentary question, and I'm going to ask you to bear with me because it's so rudimentary that it's almost not worth, uh, (laughs) you know, the depth of your expertise, but it's an important question nonetheless. Why is the NHI so contentious? Well, what it's proposing to do is to uh, close down two systems that exist already and create a third one. So it's proposing to centralize the purchasing of health care from the provinces and put it in a national fund. And it's also proposing to close down medical schemes and to put the purchasing in the same fund. And uh, the coverage that would have been in both those previous systems would theoretically now be uh, organized by um, a national structure, a state fund. What does what does that mean in practice? In practice, it means everybody will have will be a subscriber to the national health insurance. The same way, if you have private health care at the moment, you are a subscriber to whatever you may be. It may be Fed Health, it may be Discovery, it may be um, Gems, whatever the case may be. It just means that the purchaser will be centralized in a state functionary and not in the private sector. Is am I understanding you correctly? Yeah, that's a theory. Uh, you know, what will happen in reality, I think, would be quite different. Um, the uh, the, consolidate, the proposal to consolidate purchasing into that state structure doesn't mean that you're actually going to get the coverage it promises, and that's part of why it's controversial. The framework has never been tested. It's cre- establishing a structure that will be uh, that will be highly politicised, and that all of the appointments are, are uh, essentially by the Minister of Health. And uh, and that is a, a very very high risk design, and so the the movement from your private medical scheme or even from sort of provincial government to this uh, national structure doesn't guarantee that you will actually get any health care at all, and so the question is what will then happen? Uh, so that's a theory. Um, this the structure doesn't exist. It's very improbable that it will ever come to life and exist. So the uh, and that's uh, and the problem so let's, really let's, that, yeah. Can we stick to the mechanisms uh, for a second, and we'll get to its probabilities uh, a little bit later on, that's because that's more the political conversation. Uh, perhaps want to have the uh, technical conversation first. From a purchasing perspective, how does it currently work? 
and how will it be reformed by the bill? We just lost uh, Prof. Alex there. We're going to see if we can try and get him back on the line over there. Um, you know, and of course, you know, purchasing means that the state will, or at least the purchaser, will be purchasing on behalf of all of us, and they'll be purchasing from the relative relevant authorities. But will you be getting access to more equitable healthcare, to the right type of healthcare, to the right type of healthcare resources like medicines? Um, those are critically important, like this uh, treatment equipment, if you need dialysis, for instance, will you have an improved chance as a public sector healthcare customer? Uh, I say customer because you're a taxpayer, and, 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 and so you're entitled to that access. Uh, will you be getting access, improved access to dialysis, chemotherapy, uh, hypothetically speaking, and all these things that are life, life-saving treatments and medicines? That is effectively part of the question. Fatima Hassan is on the line with us this evening as well. Fatima, uh, w- what are we trying to solve for here? Hi, good to be on the show. Um, so it's a bit unclear, right? I think given that Parliament has um, voted in favour of the bill and it will now go to the NCOP and then the President, um, but the stated objective of the NHI bill, which is now the version B of the bill, is to really expand and ensure that everybody living in the country has access to healthcare services when they need it. But unfortunately, like we've argued, many of us have been warning the way in which the bill is drafted doesn't necessarily guarantee that. So on your question around access to medicine, the stated intention is that everybody would access medicines through a formulary that is determined by the state through a benefits advisory committee. Um, And then those medicines would be available to patients who would be entitled or allowed or permitted to use um, facilities that fall under NHI. So you'd have to be an accredited health provider, you'd go into a clinic or a hospital, um, you'd have a life-threatening illness or a, you know, a chronic condition, and if the medicines are included on what's called a formulary or a list that's determined by the state, then you'd be able to access it. But not everybody would be able to access that. And if the state doesn't have enough resources... Why, why is it that not everybody would be able to access it? What okay. is there? Is there a provision that will preclude access to certain people? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, let me try and um, simplify the the way in which the bill tries to explain how medicine access is going to work through four different systems. Now, it's confusing for us uh, who've been working on these issues for for many years. Um, and it's confusing for many experts in the field, but I'll try my best to explain what what the bill is actually saying or what it's promising. So the reason we say that not everybody is going to be you know, entitled to walk into a state facility or in a trailer to the health provider and get yeah. the necessary treatment is because the bill defines what a user of the MHI fund is. So you and I who have an ID document, yeah. we'd be a user all children, even if they're refugees or asylum seekers, or children, given uh, recent jurisprudence uh, around what children are entitled to, would be would have a certain benefit uh, available to them, but not all adults. So if you are um, an undocumented person, 
So you were born in South Africa and you don't have an identity document. If you are considered by the Bokul, inverted commas, an illegal foreigner, an asylum seeker, you wouldn't be able to make use of services through the NHS fund. Okay. So you would have to take out additional cover, and that's where the second system comes in. Mm. So the bill is allowing the status quo to continue. If mm. the state can't provide you with a certain medicine, or it's too expensive, or they don't include it on the minimum uh, formulary list, you can take out complementary cover, which many of us who have jobs do at the moment, or even MPs who belong to medical schemes like PAMED. So you can get additional cover, and basically you can get better medicine by paying for your medical scheme coverage and then getting it through a scheme. But then there's a third system that's introduced in this bill, which is why we say it's, you know, the, the entire system is very confusing now. We're really not sure um, what type of systemic design you actually want to create for medicine access. The third system is that students who are not South Africans, who have a study visa, and workers who are not South African and have a work visa, um, who are being called international travelers in the bill, which mm. is also a very strange term, um, they would have to take out medical insurance for them to access certain, for them to access uh, health services, but also to access medicines. So that's already the case, is it not? Uh, that <laughs> exactly. that is the status quo uh, yeah. pertaining to students, uh, foreign national students uh, studying in South African institutions. Uh, part of the registration requirement at the moment is that you have a certain uh, certain medical insurance or medical coverage. Uh, for you to be admitted for study in a particular institution. Is it then your call, Fatima, that there needs to be a change to that, that it should be an entirely open system, unfettered? No, I think what we just confused by is that the NHI was supposed to be this radical change in providing universal health coverage, which was supposed to streamline medicine access and was supposed to streamline the parallel system by which people currently living in South Africa can access medicine. Yeah. But what the bill has actually done or what's been adopted is the same thing. It's the, it's the exact status quo, like you correctly point out, where public users uh, would use public facilities would now just be incorporated under the NHI. You still can have complementary medical cover for top-ups, so you can buy up if you're wealthy or if you have a job. And then what's called international travelers have to have insurance. And then the fourth way in which you can access uh, different medicines that are not maybe included under the NHI formulary would be through out-of-pocket payments where you don't belong to a medical scheme, you don't have specific insurance, but you just pay for it uh, through your savings or, you know, you take out a loan to pay for a life-saving treatment yeah. or, a, or a medicine for your child or, or your partner. So it's basically giving effect to the four systems that currently are. Some, some of it is, is defined in very unclear ways. Um, the uh, the uh, state security and SNDF are totally excluded from the system, so they're going to have their own um, parallel system for selecting and procuring and paying for medicine. Yeah. So this is why we're arguing that the entire system of medicine selection, procurement, pricing, um, and also the negotiation for which medicines will, you and I will be able to access under any one of those four or five systems is very unclear. It's very mm. ambiguously drafted. 
And, you know, we really want government to, to understand and appreciate that we all want universal health coverage. We all want everybody to access the best medicines that they are available in the market for all treatments, but they're not listening. And I think that has been the sad thing about today, yeah. that this has become a political uh, partisan issue. The parties are voting based on their own political ideologies, but we are going to go into a crisis of... Um, not being able to necessarily access the right methods at the right time because you're going to try and merge four different systems while allowing it to exist simultaneously for potentially, you know, at least a decade or two until the minister, there's a provision in the bill, until the minister determines um, in inverted commas that NHI is fully implemented and that's when medical schemes will only be able to offer complementary cover over Mm, and above mm. what the NHI uh, is providing. So, you know, it's it's a bit technical, and sorry for for giving you a very technical explanation, but it's you know the bottom line is, is that it's very confusing and it's not very clearly drafted, um, and there really yeah. has to be a redesign. And we hope that the NCLP um, sort of attends to that, and if not, that the president, uh, when he's asked to you know ascend to the ball, actually sends it back. Sure. Yeah. Uh, uh- I want to bring you back into the conversation here, Alex. We had just lost you there earlier on. Yeah. Uh, it was the question around the purchasing power and function, the administration thereof, uh, would move away from private sector hands into a single state-administered um, purchasing function. Uh, w- is there a need for that to happen at the moment? And I'll ask that, bearing in mind that the Competition Commission had long warned us about monopolistic behavior uh, in, in, the medical, in the medical scheme uh, sector pertaining specifically to purchasing patents. Well, no, first of all, to your question, whether or not this is necessary for us to have a coherent universal coverage model, absolutely no. Um, part of also what Fatima is, is talking to is that the cumbersome nature of this bill purports to kind of uh, create a particular structure to solve multiple problems. But what it fails to do is to solve the specific problems that we need to address. So if you're looking at medicine procurement and distribution and access, there are many ways of doing that, not through this silly bill. Yeah. Um, the same. The same goes for the design of proper benefit packages, the reimbursement of public hospitals, and their improvement in in terms of quality. None of those issues are covered in this bill, and would be. And you would. There are many, many very coherent ways of improving the quality and governance of our public system as it operates now. You don't need this fund and this structure to do that. Um, In the case of medical schemes and their regulation, the Competition Commission's process, the health market inquiry, came up with a structural framework in order to correct the imbalances that are are causing problems within the private sector. The Department of Health has done absolutely nothing with that. It was finalized in 2018. So... It's also important to note that whether when we're talking about medicines, governance of hospitals, um, medical scheme regulation, this Department of Health and this government has done absolutely nothing since 2004 to do any to address any of those issues in South Africa. So essentially, what's happened is they've done absolutely nothing for 20 years, and then propose this bill as if they're going to actually change anything on the ground. The reality is that this bill is a dog's breakfast, and the institutional framework that's proposed on the. First 
fiscal framework that supposedly supports it can't be implemented. And all that's going to happen is we're going to have no real reform for another 10 years if this government right. stays in place. But I'm not sure it will. But the point is that this, uh, that this particular set of proposals actually takes us backwards, not forwards, and is actually a distraction from implementing real reforms that we should have been focusing on in the last 20 years. My concern, though, is that I don't actually believe that the National Department of Health and the government at this point in time have actually enough capacity and capability to reform the things that they should have, let alone implement this, this act, which is, uh, is really incoherent. From an institutional perspective, is unimplementable. And there is no way that it's going to transition us away from any imperfection in our current system. It's just going to complicate the existing system and just distract government away from doing its job. So I, I think that I'm concerned that we still have a government that's not prepared to change the governance structure of our public system, address the systemic corruption that's been in the national department as well as in the provincial departments. The, uh, at this point in time, they don't appear to have the political will to address that corruption, the uh, systemic, the syndicates that are operating around our public health system. All of those are people who have political connections and are linked into government. Yeah. Now, if those were the things that are causing our provincial health systems to collapse in at least eight provinces out of nine, um, I, are, are the same people and the same actors actually going to address them through the National Health Insurance Fund? No, they're not. So I think that we, we are basically dealing with a situation where there is a non-reform on the table and a pretense that something's going to happen when, in fact, that that's not the serious objective. Yeah. The status quo is going to remain yeah. and get worse. So. I had a conversation with um, a special advisor to the president on the NHI, Dr. Olive Shisana, uh, on the day that the portfolio committee had uh, passed the bill. From that conversation, my understanding, uh, Alex, was this, that the NHI will give access to all patients, to all medical facilities, private or public, that exist in the country within specific jurisdictions, right? It wouldn't preclude, say, me as a public sector uh, patient from being able to access the facilities and the services of uh, life, ho life care hospital that is a private facility. That's what I understood it to be. But similarly, it means that those who are currently uh, medical aid, private medical aid scheme subscribers can continue to do so uh, except though the things that are considered primary benefits there would fall onto the state's uh, health insurance, the NHI, and what you continue to find in that part of the sector is that you are accessing, say, from Discovery Health, the type of medical services uh, that you don't find in the NHI, which typically would be cosmetic type of medical services uh, uh, Dr. Shisana had described. Wh wh where is the discrepancy there? Sorry, I mean, basically, that's gobbledygook. The reality is that uh, you can't create such a system. That's a set of objectives. I promise I will give you this. I promise I will give you that. This is how it will work. There is no actual mechanism that's proposed in the bill or that the government is capable of introducing that would allow that to happen. So currently, according to the Office of Health Standards Compliance Inspections, of public facilities, only around about 17% of them actually come anywhere close to, uh, to being what would be regarded as accredited 
in a, a national health insurance fund. So most of our public sec- public health facilities are not fit for purpose. Um, so, you know, so that's the first issue is that the bulk of our hospital services technically don't comply with the requirements for being contracted to the NHI fund. And then they're talking about private facilities. So there's this massive unevenness between these services. How are you going to define the package coherently? How are you going to create coherent referral systems to all of this structure? How are you going to transition your financing? Because the assumption is that they're going to increase taxes equivalent to what people are paying for medical schemes and somehow translate that into the public sector budget. Yeah. So that means that there is no way that fiscally that that could actually happen because you, can't, you can only tax or increase tax rates by so much before you actually start getting reduced revenue. You don't get an increase in revenue by increasing tax rates. If you go beyond a certain point, you get a decrease. So you don't get a fiscal substitution effect from a contribution to a medical scheme and assume that by introducing a tax that you're going to get that same money rand for rand introduced into the state. So how are you going to pay for all of that and then give people access to what they supposedly had access to before? They, they, you know, it's gobbledygook. They actually don't really know what they're talking about. And I'm afraid Olive Shasana is not somebody who understands these things. So this is a very, very incoherent framework. It hasn't been thought through. And what they're really doing is listing promises. They're not actually listing, identifying how they are going to achieve these objectives. They can't really. They just basically say, we're going to set this up and we're going to problem solve as we go along for the next 50 years, supposedly. Two questions to that. one is, is, is on the mechanism. Um, is the purpose of the bill to give answers to all of those operational questions that you're asking at the moment? Or is that uh, to be left for a, a, a statutory body that would be born out of uh, the legislature and the statutory body will build the policy based on the law uh, that will be uh, built into the NHI and they will then answer the operational mechanistic questions? Um, that's the first. And then the second is on the affordability question. Many proponents of the NHI are arguing that we're already spending a respectable amount of uh, money as a proportion of our GDP on healthcare. that an NHI doesn't necessarily require more spending. It just requires different, more efficient spending uh, from what we currently have. Yeah, so the efficient spending that we have at Timbisa Hospital, you know, the the problem that we have at this point is that when you throw money at the health system, it doesn't hit the ground. So in the case of the public sector, much of the infrastructural spend is stolen. It's not that it isn't allocated, it's that it doesn't actually get done, as with a lot of other infrastructural spending, not just healthcare. So the problem there is that there is that there is institutionalized corruption in the allocation of resources within the state. So this idea that somehow money gets allocated efficiently first has to be addressed. There is no mechanism that deals with that. Now, we can definitely spend our funds more efficiently, uh, both in the private sector and the public sector, but nothing in this framework does that. It's just promises. They're basically saying with exactly the same state structures that we have today, we are somehow going to do things differently than we did before. 
Right. We are going to spend this money without corruption. We are going to have a single gatekeeper for everybody in the health system. You are going to be trapped in the system. We're going to eschemize the health, the health system. So just note that in this framework, they're proposing to prohibit competition from this national fund, pretty much the way Eskom prohibited competition in, uh, in generation and distribution. They did that in order to create a single gatekeeper, supposedly to in, in, create efficiencies in procurement and distribution. Now, if Eskom, uh, a state monopoly of that nature, uh, were able to achieve efficiencies, we wouldn't be sitting with a load shedding at this point in time. Um, the health system load sheds in a very different way. Right. When it becomes extremely inefficient, it just kills people. Yeah. So that's potentially what's happening now. So the allocation of resources today, if it were being done efficiently, would be uh, would be something you could build on. But we have actually got failing provincial departments of health because of institutionalized corruption. Okay. Now, what is going to change? So th those are the issues. This, is, this rather superficial notion that somehow this is all about resource allocation, that we're going to take money from somewhere else and then spend it efficiently is nonsense. Yeah. There is no mechanism that they have defined that can do this when the only method that they're proposing to do so is to do it the way we do it now. Yeah. Uh, Fatima, I want to give you an opportunity to reflect on the question around the differentiation between what a statutory body born out of the legislature would, would be building as a policy-making, implementing uh, regulatory authority versus what we expect to be in the bill as far as mechaniz operational mechanisms are concerned. Are we perhaps not asking too much off of a piece of legislature that we could potentially build into a regulatory implementing authority? Yeah, I mean, I think fair question, but, you know, the the bill is now 60 pages long and it offers signposts of what the framework is going to look like. And I think that's the concern, that it's not robust enough, it's not clear enough, and actually what government is doing is inviting itself to, to years and years and years of legal challenges from a number of different uh, role players and also, you know, particular vested interests. So the signposts that we can see, and we've been studying this, you know, 60 pages for the last few weeks, yeah. um, it's clear that when you walk, yes, Olive is right, you can walk uh, potentially into a life gear or in some private facility, which is great. It may shorten some queues in state facilities. But that's only if they want to be an accredited service provider for NHI, and there's a process that they'll have to follow, and they'll have to get that accreditation. And only secondly, if they are promptly reimbursed by the state for the provision of NHI services to right. you or me or to somebody who works for us. And well, and the state, is, uh, the state is quite a bad payer, typically. Yeah, so there's currently an issue... Uh, there's anecdotal reports about the lack of reimbursement or prompt reimbursement by the state on, for example, COVID-19 vaccines to independent pharmacies. So there could be a reluctance by smaller providers, uh, by even larger providers who don't want to take on the risk of getting delayed payments or non-payments. But, but I think the more critical issue here around walking into this private facility, which may look all shiny and great and, you know, have some clean floors, is that they would only be able to offer you, assuming there's enough money in the fund, assuming reimbursement is prompt, assuming they have accreditation, they are only able to offer you what's considered NHI-defined services and medicines. 
yeah. that are regarded as basic services, as a definition for basic health products in the bill, which is in this formulary determined by this Benefits Advisory Committee, which is appointed by the Minister now in consultation with Cabinet uh, or through the board of the NHI Fund, and any additional services. So it's the same services you would get in a state facility. Any yeah. additional services, what is regarded as services that are beyond the NHI's domain or Which typically are cos- cosmetic services, uh, well, they, no, they tell I, us. I, in, in, in some cases, there are essential treatments that are not available in the state because the state can't afford it, and you can only access it in the private sector. For a long time, you could only access ARVs through the private sector because the state takes a policy to not provide it. So there could be multiple reasons why for essential treatments or for expensive treatment, you can't get it through the state facility and you have to actually pay for it through your medical insurance or yeah. through, as I explained earlier, through out-of-pocket payment. So this assumption that everybody's going to walk into a private health facility and get every available potential service that a medical scheme ordinarily offers, offers is actually a myth because there is going to be an NHI-defined uh, basic set of services. And, and that's not, you know, uh, exp- uh, uh, sort of given enough, I think, uh, meat in the bowl. And that is what creates a lack of trust in government drafting and also in this particular process. Right. So, you know, you, you have to examine and interrogate this very short section on the Benefits Advisory Committee that will be established by Minister and the NHI Board. I mean, there's some amendments now on Cabinet's involvement in making, uh, approving certain decisions around the CEO of the fund and the chairperson of the board, but those are small changes. Yeah. There's some amendments to the role and ambit of the Competition Commission, and Alex is correct that the Competition Commission is excluded from overseeing or uh, regulating any of the conduct of the fund itself in its negotiation with uh, private suppliers or the pharmaceutical companies. And there's some new language on conflicts of interest for uh, these advisory and technical committee members. But nothing else that is significantly material that even groups in civil society or trade unions or progressive health groups can say, we are totally behind this and this is what we want to make work. And we want to. We want to change our unequal health system in South Africa. It is totally outrageous that a rich person can access better health care than a poor person or somebody with a job can access medical aid and somebody with, without a job can't do it. And that is unfair. But, but this is this ball is not going to be the solution to that. And, you know, uh, I've written today in the Daily Mavericks that it actually entrenches the status quo. Yeah. Um, and it's going to take a long time to reverse sort of what is being proposed here. So I think government also has to be a bit more honest yeah. in the way in which it's trying to portray what this ball is actually going to do and what it's saying it's going to do. And unfortunately, the proof is in the pudding. Sure. We can only believe the intent of the legislation if you study all 60 pages and you read the bill. It can't be what somebody said in a debate, for yeah. example. And, and, and Alex, maybe just a last question to you in the last uh, 30 seconds that we have left here. Uh, many proponents, once again, of the bill uh, making the argument 
that anyone expecting NHI to be fully implemented overnight as soon as the president signs the bill into law is naive, that it will take uh, a half a decade or perhaps even a decade for the bill to become fully implemented. And so some of the concerns you have are not concerns of now. It may be a concern of 10 years from now uh, that we will have runway time to be able to solve for. That's just buying them time. They're sort of uh, kicking for touch on this because they know they can't actually implement it. So they're basically saying it'll be implemented 20 years from now. Uh, The reality is that the institutional design itself is problematic. And just to point out that the issue of benefit design, the only way you can ration out of a budget is that you've got to be able to spend equivalent to your uh, service package. But they're actually proposing what would essentially be a demand-related package, which you can't limit with a normal budget. They don't understand that in the way sure. they're framing this. Okay. So the the issue is there would be no way to actually fund it, and they don't really understand the benefit designs that are coherent mm-hmm. with a demand-driven budget. Thank you so much for your time this evening, uh, Alex van der Heven. Really, really, really do appreciate your insights here on, uh, on on Night Talk this evening. Fatima Hassan, thank you so much for your time as well. Really, really do appreciate it.